You know, when we started Relationship Rewire just eight short months ago, we had no idea we would touch so many lives and help so many marriages and relationships. Already, we've had over 85,000 downloads. We're now averaging over 3,000 downloads a week, and that number just keeps going up. I get so excited thinking of ways we can reach even more people. But Relationship Rewire is not all that the Growing Love Network does. We prepare people for lifelong love through our Growing Love course, which, by the way, has been selected by the state of Texas as a Together in Texas premarital course. Couples who complete the course don't have to pay the state of Texas marriage license fee. We also provide a three-day intensive workshop called Love Reboot about once a month. Last month, I just completed leading my 100th marriage intensive, and I can assure you that you will find nothing more effective for healing, strengthening, and saving marriages. But Growing Love Network started as part of its mission, to be accessible to anyone. We built our nonprofit organization on a model that provides our services for a fraction of the cost for similar services. On top of that, we offer scholarships for our workshops so that no one will be denied the help they need. Other reputable marriage intensives start at 2000 and most are 3500 and above, with no scholarships available for those who can't afford them. Love Reboot, our intensive, is less than half the cost of those $2,000 workshops, and almost half of our participants apply for and receive scholarship assistance. So here's what I'm saying. Growing Love Network cannot provide the help we provide without donors. In order to continue bringing this program and everything else we do to prepare people for lifelong love, to strengthen relationships, to heal failing and broken marriages, we need your help. We want to continue providing what we do for those who, for whatever reason, can't give back at this time. But if you have any means to help, whether it's twenty-five dollars or $25,000, please hit pause. Go to growinglovenetwork.org and click on the donate button. And as just one way of saying thanks, we won't continue until you've made that donation and hit the play button again. Welcome to another episode of Relationship Rewire, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. The title of this episode is Submission, Headship, and Power Struggles, and my guest is Mark Absher. All right, I've got Mark Absher, who's a good friend of mine, good fishing buddy, and uh, mostly just good barbecue eating buddy. He is the senior minister at MacArthur Park Church of Christ in San Antonio, Texas. And I decided to, well, I asked Mark to be on this because I wanted to, I thought he'd be a good person to 
put some stuff out there that uh, maybe some people don't want to talk about. Look at some things from different perspectives in terms of husbands and wives, gender roles in marriage. Are there biblical gender roles? If so, uh, what do those look like? What does it mean to have headship in uh, as a husband? What about how, how does power play out in these between uh, husbands and wives? So let, let me I want to start with the, this idea of submission. Now I know Ephesians five starts out. Well, it didn't start out. Ephesians five twenty one says submit to one another. Now, I just uh, found this out about a year and a half ago that it also, you know, what we, a lot of people focus on the next verse that says, wives submit to your husbands. And a lot of men don't even know that verse before that. Their their favorite verse in the Bible um, is wives submit to your husbands, but they don't know the verse before that that says submit to one another. And then most, uh, most modern translations don't, go on to say husbands submit to your wives they say husbands love your wives but I just found out and you may correct me but I I did a a check in my limited Greek that the word that's used in verse 520 Ephesians 520 for submit is not actually used in the following verse that we translate as submit is that what, what, what are your thoughts on that I, I think that we sometimes run into trouble if we don't uh, if we don't look globally, and I mean throughout you know from Genesis to the maps, if we don't look at um, the truth that is being revealed throughout the Bible about these kinds of relationships. Um, you know, when Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, he's writing about some some very specific issues, obviously. Um, what, what always strikes me about that Ephesians 5 passage is that what Paul is trying to describe to that church is that when people look at a marriage, they should get some idea of what the gospel is all about. And, and a lot of it is couched in the language of, of Genesis 3, where after the fall, uh, you have you know, God coming into the garden and discovering that, um, uh, that there has been the eating of the forbidden fruit, and there is this oracle that he gives, where, uh, and and I think everybody's familiar with, uh, you know, about the uh, the cursing of of the serpent is going to crawl on his belly and uh, the dust and all of that, and woman and, and childbirth and man sweating and thorns and thistles and all of that. But at the end of that oracle, he he, he does talk about the the relationship between a husband and a wife. And I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's prophecy. I think it's an oracle. It's a description of, from that point on, because sin has entered into the world, there is going to be this struggle in a relationship that is, and again, going back to Ephesians as well as other places in the Bible, where people are supposed to figure out how to be one flesh. Genesis chapter two, I think Ephesians five does not contradict that in the least. It, it's a way of becoming one, and what God is describing there is this, this, this struggle that is going to happen between men and women. And Paul is trying to instruct the church in Ephesus: how how do you become one flesh in a world like this? And so uh, there is a, there is a, a submitting part to that. Uh, in my own marriage, 
uh, I believe that if I am following the example of Christ, um, sometimes the best thing for my marriage is not to win. It is uh, the best thing for my marriage not to get my will, uh, to get my way, to, to for me to to uh, to have the final say in a direction or something is going to uh, transpire in our marriage. Sometimes the best thing that can happen in my marriage is for me to lose and for Ellen to get. Uh, uh, you know, the way that she would like for something to go or for something to, to transpire in our marriage, for, for, that, for that to be the very thing that takes place. So that word submission is, is kind, of a, uh, kind of a weird thing. Uh, you know, when the woman is introduced to the man, uh, she's not introduced to him as somebody that's inferior. She's, not, she, she's introduced to him as a strength. Um, which I think is really the proper way that you're supposed to, as a husband, you look at a wife. Um, she's a strength that comes into your life. Uh, she is uh, a power that comes into my life that that turns the tide of battle, uh, that, that, that comes in the nick of time and changes a misfortune into something really, really good. She, she is this power that comes into my life that is to bless me. And, and that, when you, I think when you have a... a uh, kind of a creation-based theology of marriage that begins your understanding of marriage as you read it throughout the the, the Bible. You see, um, you know, the Bible. There are lots of stories of polygamy in the Bible, but they're always bad. Um, the woman always loses, which I think is the point of those stories being in the Bible. That. That that's not the way that Bible that God has always intended marriage, and that's why those stories are in the Bible. Not to say that polygamy is great or that um, the way that women are treated in those kinds of marriage is the right way for them to be treated. It is a it is a teaching for us to understand that that that's not the way that it was supposed to be. And I think the same is true when you get to Ephesians five, that there is um, that there is a, a a submitting, and I think that there is a loving that takes place in marriage. There are things that are obviously parts of marriage that are not mentioned in that passage, so you're not looking at an all-defining way to to look at marriage. But uh, how can I love my wife if I'm not submitting to her in some way? Uh, How can I love uh, my wife if if in some way I'm not serving her? That That is a weak view of love that doesn't see serving, sacrificing, celebrating, lifting up, making beautiful... And somehow I am submitting to the presence of my wife in my marriage when I love her like that. And, and love is, is, a, is a much more powerful way to think about submission than just the, the word itself and thinking about who's the final decider, which I, in the first place, I don't think that that's what Paul is trying to say is that the wife never has a say in a marriage anyway. Hello, this is Max Lucado. You're listening to Relationship Rewired. So, the, the starting off of all that, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it's, then it's like, okay, so it's out, in, in some ways, if we could picture, he's talking to a couple, which he's obviously not. He's talking to all these... He's trying to give an example of yeah. what the church looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. exactly... In the first place, he's talking about... Here's what how the church should be treating each other, but then he comes to brings it into okay, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, 
blah, blah, blah. Husbands, blah, blah, blah. It seems to me just in in context there, it's, it's assumed that he's saying, wives, you need to submit. Husbands, you need to submit. It's not one or the other. Is Am I getting something wrong there in your opinion? Well, it, it, it's hard to say. I, I don't think that, that he's trying to say... Um, um, something opposite to each. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, in that particular culture and um, uh, in their, their views of marriage, there, there was a real need for men to have a, a deeper understanding of what it meant to be married, and that was to love. It wasn't to have, um, it, it wasn't to have um, sort of a, a ruler, a, a authoritative, position over the woman what he is you know he is really trying to help them understand the church and the relationship that Christ and the church have to each other that the closest thing that he can come to in, in human experience is that of, of marriage and I can't think of, of of anybody who would say that that somehow Christ did not serve did not make beautiful did not um, did not celebrate did not did not grace did not gift human beings through the way that he loved them and the idea of you know you go back to john chapter 13 and the serving of 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 those disciples who were struggling with the issues of who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom and he does the most demeaning thing that a servant can do in that day and age and that was to wash the feet of another and they probably would not have had any any problem with them washing his feet what they had a problem with was he who they saw in an authoritative king type lord position washing their feet and what is it that he tells him as he defines that act for them is that people are going to know that you're my people you're my disciples when you have this kind of love one for another and i th- i think that you know that is that's the idea that comes across throughout the bible when it comes to loving somebody is that when you love somebody deeply like that you're going to you're going to make sacrifices and you're going to do what's best for that person and you're going to listen all the, all the acts of love are uh, that are mentioned in the bible come to bear in in a marriage in in that word love and in that relationship and and i think that it is a deep and a profound thing that paul is talking about um, this idea we of... We try to simplify too much? Well, we we think about it one-dimensionally, I think. And whenever you think about something one-dimensionally, we get in trouble. Human beings are not one-dimensional. We're multi-dimensional. And if a wife only thinks of a husband as the head of a household or a paycheck or um, you know somebody that is a father to my kids, then you're missing out on what a husband really is. And it's the same with a wife. If you think one-dimensionally about a wife... That she's she's there for sex, she's there for children, she's there to take you know clean the socks and change the sheets on the bed. Then, then then you've really you've really missed the the, the beauty that is in uh, a relationship with a wife or a husband. And and I think that uh, you know he is talking about something that uh, was pertinent to that church in Ephesus. Um, but I think that he's also saying something that is not black and white, but is multidimensional. In fact, he'll talk about the the multicolored wisdom of God as it is expressed in the church in Ephesians chapter 3. It's the same kind of thing that's happening in Ephesians chapter 5. This this idea of sum, submission is something that's done out of love. 
And the idea of loving somebody to the point that you're willing to submit to their will or submit to their needs or submit to, to what it is that is going to make them beautiful. I think he's, in a lot of ways, he's saying the same thing, but he's coming at it from two different ways. So, okay. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, it does to me. I, I, some pushback I would that I would receive, I think, from some people saying what you said would be, okay, yeah, I get that. Uh, here's the thing. Christ, uh, there's also a scripture that says Christ is, uh, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So, uh, and they would actually very much interlink these two scriptures uh, into an idea that, okay, yes, Christ loved me, died, gave himself up for me, died for me, but it's Jesus who I get instruction from on how to live life. And Jesus is the head of me. Um, he gives me instruction, although he gave, gives himself up. So I give myself up for my wife. But hey, when it comes down to uh, where the good instruction for how we proceed as a husband and wife, how we proceed as a family, uh, or even on a matter of my opinion on what the wife is going to do, take on a different job or what grocery she's going to pick out. Um, I need to give her instruction on that, and that instruction needs to weigh hev- more heavily than what she may think is the best way to go about doing something. Is that are you catching my drift here? Yeah, uh, and, and again, um, you, you know, there's a lot of spade work that needs to be done, and a lot of theological study and and prayer that needs to go into. Uh, investigating those verses and, and trying to draw out the, the, the true meaning. Um, but even if you take the, the God and the Christ relationship, and, and I think that's a hard thing to do because the, the Bible describes the, the oneness between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit with such uh, such a, a, a profound degree of unity that it, it's really hard to, to separate them. But there is... Um, there is a submission of God the Son in Luke chapter 22 to the will of God the Father. Um, he is warning the, uh, the cup to pass by. Obviously, he's talking about not just the crucifixion, but the mocking, the injustice, everything that's going to be happening over the next several hours in his life. And uh, the cup is not taken away in that he commits himself to the will of God. And... Uh, you know when you when you when Paul begins to make those arguments in First um, Corinthians chapter eleven and talking about headship and these kinds of things, um, I, I think to think about that in terms of authority and final say is just a one-dimensional way of of of, of thinking about it. Uh, there is there's a, a couple a couple. Well, I've, I've heard one funny quip. I'm not sure it may have some merit, but I've heard people say, "Yeah, the husband's." The, the head, but the wife is the neck, and the the neck's what turns the head. Yeah, uh, no. but the, there's there's a little bit of truth to that. But um, another thing I've heard, um, well, actually, in in I've read of some uh, other uh, things that are written at the time around the time of Christ that that uh, you know there was no understanding uh, of biology that's anywhere close to what we have today, and people didn't even realize what the brain's function was. And that's why there's a lot of talk about the heart because most people at that time believed the heart was the thing that guided the body. Um, 
Which is true. Yeah. And um, so if you're thinking about headship in a biological sense, what they would be describing at that time is uh, the head was the place where all uh, where, where four of your five senses was, were located. Uh, your eyes, your, your, your sight, your smell, your taste, and your hearing. And so this is kind of like the sentinel, the sentinel of, of the rest of the body. The head is, is, is headship in that case would not mean in charge of the body. It would mean it's actually who sits out in the, in the watchtower is one, one of the, you know, guard duty is the lowest, I guess, right above latrine duty, right? Um, it, it, it doesn't, in that sense, would not apply some kind of hierarchy of, of uh, who's in charge. It would reply something more like a protector or watcher out. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man has a really good uh, des- description of that. You know, the head is a place where you have all the indicative facts. And the heart was the place where you found the action, the imperatives, you know, the values. Um, you know, uh, when people go to war, um, you know, they're going to, they die in your heart. You have to decide whether or not that's a good thing to die for country or not. And, and then that would translate into the viscera, which was, you know, the action. And so, uh, you know, the head is a place where, yeah, there were, uh, you know, the things that needed to be done, the, the things for survival, the things that, that, uh, that make you who you are. Uh, but, you know, it was the heart that, like you were saying, this much more of the control center. Uh, but getting back to that, that headship thing, I, I think that what, what Paul is trying to explain in that, in that particular case is, is that um, there, is, there is a need for order. But that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that there, are, um, that there are roles that are being specifically defined in that. Because, you know, he's going to be talking about communion and it's going to go off into worship. And, you know, but here he is talking about, uh, you know, angels and head coverings and all these kinds of things. And, you know, people have been studying that for 2,000 years and don't exactly know what he's, what he's trying to, to, to get at at that mm-hmm. point. Uh, and and I don't think that what he's trying to say, it, what he's trying to define right there is who's boss and who's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that he is trying to to show that there is a way that people are to relate to each other. And that when they relate to each other in a way that Christ, um, that God the Son and God the Father and God the Spirit relate to one another, that there is harmony and there's a partnership and there's a celebration and and, and a unity and, and a friendship and, and a love and all of these kinds of things that, that surpasses our, our ability to know. And in fact, that's what Paul asks us to pray for in Ephesians 3, to pray that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge because that's what we're supposed to see in the church. And he uses the example of a, of a marriage to describe what that church looks like in Ephesians 5. I, I, I think that uh, to, to narrowly define all of this as to who is the boss is to really get ourselves into some trouble um, I, I remember uh, there was a, a, a preacher in San Diego County um, before we, Ellen and I traveled off to, to uh, be church planners in, in Brazil who asked the question one time in a, in, a, in a lecture, when can a woman teach a man? And we were silent. 
And he said, when she knows something that he doesn't. <laughs> and and for me, that kind of right yeah, it, it kind of cleared up a, a lot of things <laughs> for me. Is that you, you know? Yeah, you and I both grew up in in probably hearing some debates amongst some of the elder people in our church about uh, a wife's not even supposed to stand at the front of a classroom or something. Like that. Yes, um, I I think when, that uh, when she has, uh, has something, that when she knows something, he that he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 you know, a lot of times with those passages too, like the one in in First uh, Corinthians fourteen um, about women being silent in the churches. I, I don't even think that's Paul's teaching. I think he's quoting somebody else. What do you mean? First um, Corinthians fourteen, he talks about you know women are to remain silent in the churches, and you know uh, as it's 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 taught, you know, in the law, and you go you you actually go back to the law, and you don't find that passage anywhere. You don't find that teaching anywhere. What you find it in is the rabbinics, mm. and. Um, you you don't find anything in in Pentateuch and in, in, in Torah. You don't find anything in the Old Testament law okay, that so was teaching that women were to remain silent. Yeah, I think it's important to give a brief description of rabbinics. So, um, rabbinical you, you'll, you'll te- rabbinical able, teaching. Okay, so the rabbis were teaching this, right? So there there was what a lot of people when we talk about the law, we think of well, probably that's the first five books of the Old Testament. Right. Right, the, the, the Pentateuch. Um, but there's a lot of people who talk about the, there's many books that we don't have in our canon that, uh, that Jewish people still use today um, called rabbinical law. So, for example, this, I think, correct me where I'm wrong here because you're much more of a scholar on this than me. But, uh, for example, we, we went to Nazareth, uh, we went to Israel several years back, and we got to Nazareth to our hotel on a, on a Friday afternoon, which to me I wasn't thinking Sabbath is coming on. Joanne and I, we got to our hotel, and, and they said, well, we're all going to meet down 20 minutes down uh, at the restaurant, and then we have a, a buffet for us there. We get on the elevator, we're on, I think we're on like the ninth floor. We get on the elevator and every single button is lit up. Like somebody had gone, some kid had come on and touched all the buttons. So we're like, oh, great. We had to stop at every floor to the stop. The door's open. There's nobody there. The door's closed. Go to the next floor. And we're like, oh, boy. So we get up. We go to get our stuff put away. And then we get back on the elevator, go back down to eat. And the same little kid had lit up all the buttons. So we get down and we tell him about this. It took us five minutes longer to get here because of no, this is the Sabbath. What? Well, the elevators are programmed for once sundown on Friday starts, the Sabbath, then you're not supposed to work. Pushing an elevator button could be work. And so the elevator does it for you. And I was like, well, it's a lot more work <laughs> trying to think about it's working my patience. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but so that, that, that would be a, a, an example of, well, rabbinical law that's gone uh, is, is, am I? Yeah, uh, you, you'll find um, uh, references to the traditions of men or to, um, uh, uh, you know, the law. And, and a lot of times what that's a reference to in the New Testament is that oral tradition that grew up, uh, you know, kind of the short, the short answer is um, during the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, uh, uh, really believe that the prophets were right, that they had not done 
Torah in a way that honored God. And this is what brought first the the uh, the Assyrians down to the ten tribes in the north in North Israel, and then 150 years or so later, the Babylonians to the, to the south. And uh, as they were coming back into the land um, and and repopulating it, and cities and towns and villages were growing up, uh, there there were there were synagogues. That's when the synagogues appear, and they had started in the in the exile as a way to protect. Jewish culture and to maintain Jewish culture, and they were brought into Israel. And these were places where where uh, the Old Testament was being taught, the wisdom literature, the the the, uh, the the prophets were being taught, and the books of Moses were being taught. And it's during this period of time that the Pharisees, in particular, but not just the Pharisees, were trying to make sure that they obeyed the law perfectly. And so they would create these laws that you didn't transgress. So they wouldn't get sent into exile. Again. Right. And so, well, that God would, would get rid of the Romans, well, I mean, you know. I mean. And so um, by the time that uh, uh, Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, the Pharisees are the last one standing. Essenes are gone. Zealots are gone. Sadducees are gone. And the Pharisees became concerned that this oral tradition that had become a part of of Jewish the the Jewish religious tapestry would disappear. So uh, they they began to write it all down, and that's known to us today as Talmud and Mishnah. And when you go back to what it is that Paul's referring to in First Corinthians fourteen, you you find this kind of teaching about women being silent in in this oral tradition that we now know written down as Talmud and Mishnah. And I don't think that uh, that Paul in First Corinthians fourteen is giving his his position. He's he's quoting a position of of the people in Corinth, and he's taking issue with it because in the very next verse he gets angry and he says, "Did the word of God only come to you?" And and I I think he's actually quoting them and he's taking them to task for what he has already. Uh, said in First Corinthians eleven about women prophesying and and all of this this speaking in the assembly. He's not contradicting himself three chapters later in chapter fourteen by saying you know all women are to remain silent. Right. Um, you know, and again, you know that's not really a husband wife relationship. It's it's the experience of the church and the church fellowship and, and worship and all of that. Right. But I mean, and that's a whole uh, that's another can of worms to open up. Sure. But. Well, one thing that you're hitting on too that this is so interesting. Well, we also what uh, what scripture says uh, that under under Jesus, where there's no male, no female, no Jew, no Greek. Galatians three. Yeah. Yes. Um, so um, it's it's really interesting how some of us really hone in on a scripture that appears to be presenting one. Uh, one point when there's other scriptures that seem to contradict that point um, and we put way more weight on on one side or the other of it that seems to be real dangerous ground to jump into yeah. of just claiming one of those others um, now another thing that you you but, but to that okay, point, sorry, what what you're saying is absolutely true. That's an incredibly dangerous way to study the Bible because you will find yourself contradicting yourself. The, the, I believe that the way that you are to study Scripture in, um, in, uh, in, in the right kind of way is, is to read the entire story. It's about God. It, it's it, you know the the Bible is not a collection of myths or stories or fables, it, it's it's one story from Genesis all the way to the maps about God, um, 
about man, how things got the way they are today, and what God is doing to fix it. Would, would that include the maps? Yes, the, the maps do change. But, but, but getting, back, getting back to this thing that you were talking about with, with um, uh, in Galatians 3 about no Jew, Greek, slave, free, you know, male or female, you got to do something with that passage. What does it mean for him to say that in the kingdom of God there isn't those distinctions made? Well, it, you know, it means a lot of things, but for the church, and this is why Paul is writing about it, the church represents God's kingdom and leans into God's future. And that future somehow does not make the distinctions between male and female, which are conventionally made among humans in a fallen world of thorns and thistles. Yeah. You know, it's going to be different than that oracle in Genesis 3 where the relationship between men and women are going to be messed up. So let me try to paraphrase what you're saying. To, to some extent, he's, uh, some, of, some of especially maybe Paul's direction is not, uh, well, and he actually says sometimes, this is not directly from God, this is my thoughts, but he may not say that every time that he, <laughs> he writes those. But, but even that being said, he's, um, some of us not saying, this is what God says we're supposed to be doing. This is how you navigate a fallen world yeah in our in our context or in your maybe a particular church's context here's a good way to navigate that out of, when you're operating out of the holy spirit through you um and the love uh, and with the love of christ as opposed to what might your flesh might say to handle it is that what you're saying yeah well what i'm saying is that um if you take one proof text and you build your entire theology over one text, you're going to miss out the big, on the bigger picture. And the, and the bigger picture is, how in the world did God create man and woman in the first place? And how are they to relate to each other in the first place? And what is God doing to, to, to change that relationship that has become, you know, the thorns and thistles are not just in the world, they're in us too. So how, what is God doing to fix all of that? Not just in the church, but in our marriages and in our homes and all of these different kinds of things. And so if you take, uh, if you take a text um, and, and you build your entire theology without placing it in the whole story of what God is doing, you're missing out on not just the beauty of, of what God is doing in the human project, but, you're, but I think you're also messing up on what it is that you're experiencing in your own life. And I think that... I you would know, go even further. You may even uh, run the... The wrong the direction. Risk, uh, you may run the risk of totally missing... Absolutely. Getting the opposite of what that particular proof text if, is. If you saying. read the Bible and you're only looking for command and uh, example and inference, you're reading the Bible and making it all about you. You're, you're, you're looking for something you're supposed to do. You're, you're looking for something that, that's, that's inferred. You're looking for an example. And who, who says that an example is supposed to be followed? In, you know, the, the early church met mostly at night and in homes. Why are we meeting on Sunday mornings in, uh, in a building? Yeah. What, the, the Lord's Supper was more of a meal. Why are we just, you know, I mean, if, if you're just looking at it, as a command, an example, and a necessary inference, and the silence of Scripture, and all those things that that uh, that make up a way that we we read the Bible. Sometimes you you can read the Bible in such a way that you don't learn anything about God or what God is doing. And there is a theme, there is a thread from Genesis all the way to the maps that that describes what it is. 
that God is doing through space and history to get us back to the garden. Yeah. And I like that you say that. You, you just said, beginning with Genesis and back to the garden. There's a scripture that's from Genesis that we are created in his image, male and female. Absolutely. Now, I, I just, I'm going to throw something out and see what you think of this. But, uh, you know, one way I've looked at that, and, and it's spoken to me, and I hope it's the Holy Spirit, may not have been, but that, okay, that it seems to be implying that God is male and female in that. If that's the case, then I, even if I was perfect, which I cannot be, I would only be at the most half of the image of God. And so maybe one of the beautiful pieces of this story, uh, especially the garden story, but really, like you said, it's, it's throughout, that the, the more I am, and I'm not talking about becoming more feminine if I'm masculine or becoming more masculine if I'm feminine, but the more I am taking on what is the real inside piece of, of what's different about my spouse than me, the more I am learning to speak the, that language, the more that I am tuning my heart to what matters to to my spouse as that, that's different than what matters to me, then the more I'm taking on the attributes of God, the more the closer I'm coming to God, the more I'm being like, what are you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I no, I think you're onto something there. Um, uh, you know, when I teach Genesis, I keep reminding people. Remember when Genesis was written and who heard it for the first time? It was the people who had failed to go into the land of Canaan, the promised land at Kadesh Barnea there in Numbers 13 and 14. And they're getting ready to go back in. And in Deuteronomy, you know, um, Moses, three sermons, basically remember, remember, remember. And Genesis and and um, is is something that they're hearing and it is... Um, it, it's an inst- it's instructing them. It's giving them a mindset. It, it's telling them about the world as they get ready to go into a different kind of world, the promised land that flows with milk and honey, but at the same time has the pantheon of Canaanite gods. And so as they go into that land, and remember what kept them out the first time, they didn't think God was adequate. You know, they didn't think they were adequate to take on these, to take on the giants. Yeah. You know that God that God was right. His word could be trusted about. Uh, about the land that flows with milk and honey, but it couldn't be trusted about, I will give you this land. And so they're listening to this and listening to this. And what they're being reminded is that God just incredibly powerful beyond their imagination. But also that, and and w- w- did God make a mistake when he made man and then saw that he was lonely? Is that a mistake on God's part or was that intentional? I have to believe it's part of the plan. I think it's part of the plan too. I think it's intentional. I think that God created man first or alone without the woman for man to know that he is not adequate in himself. That as they were getting ready to go into that land, they needed to know that they were not alone in the universe because God is there. God created them and God loves and God is faithful and all the things that Genesis tells us. But at the same time, they're going in there and they're knowing I'm not adequate in myself for the tasks of a world full of thorns and thistles to do this. 
And they're being reminded that God in another human being brought a strength into their life. And so the, the man is not complete in himself. He should never assume the role of God in his own life. He can't even make it on the earth without another human being. And for that relationship, in my particular case, my relationship with my wife, Ellen, I, and, and again, I, and I, you know, talking about singles and all of that kind of goes into a different direction. But I know that I am a different kind of a human being because of the woman that God brought into my life and the way that she has changed me as we became one flesh. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, when we look, so you're talking about... We're kind of all over the place today, aren't we? That's good, though. (laughs) Uh, I think this is actually better than trying to stick to a script, which we didn't have a script in the first place, but if we we talked about having a script. (laughs) Okay, so it's real important to look at everything, every passage in the grand scheme of Genesis through Revelation and the maps. The maps are, are probably the biggest piece, but man, I love the maps. I do too. Um, what, where's that scripture when we look at Genesis through Revelation that I hear so many men in church quoting today that I am supposed to be the leader of the family? What scripture is that? Well, there's a, yeah, you know, there's talking about, you know, men are the head of the household and these kinds of things. But, but again, uh, you know, what, what does it mean to be a leader? Is, is my understanding of, of being a leader uh, so tenuous or precariously perched that a, a, a woman who might have an opinion or might know something more than me or that that all of a sudden you, you know that uh, that definition of leadership you know drops into the fetal position. Uh, I, you know I don't think so. I, you know I, you know I don't know how to explain any better than to give an example from my own marriage. But uh, there there are lots of times that that I that I, I certainly concede to Ellen because she knows more than I do, or or she has a better take on something, or she has more experience. And and for her to be able to to uh, uh, to to take a, a a lead in the decision making does not necessarily uh, preclude any leadership responsibilities I might have in my own home. And I do believe that I do I have res- those some of those responsibilities. You know, there's a, there's a there is um, a responsibility for me to protect. There's a, a there's a you know, there's a responsibility to, to nurture. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of, of responsibilities that I have and that um, uh, not only am I responsible for, but I'm accountable for. But the fact that my wife might make a decision that, uh, that I may concede to does not, that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do anything to make me less of a man. My, my idea of leadership or my idea of man is not couched in me always getting my way or always having the final say or always being the boss. Okay, let me do a little pushback on that. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me become one flesh with my wife. Let us become one. Yes. You know? And, and I think a, a lot of, there's a lot of husbands who, who would say, yeah, let we become one flesh. Here's how I just heard it at one of our workshops very recently. A husband said, how do I get my wife to get on board with the plan 
I think he might have been saying in a, in a, a certain version of how do I get my wife to become one with me, which, <laughs> which is, um, <laughs> you know, I think it's, a, it's well, not very veiled, but he was trying to veil this. this his idea of, of humble leadership is uh, God hands me the overall plan. Sure, yes, I know some things, you know, yes, my wife probably should take the lead. And I'm just speaking from what I think his mindset may be. My wife should take the lead on how the clothes should be folded and the groceries to get and and what best uh, remove stains from the couch. But as far as the overall plan for our family and our marriage, that's handed to me through God. And so, but I need to work in unison with her. So how do I get her to be on board? It, it's, it's like... I think a lot of men have this idea that becoming one means you get on board with the plan with me. Yeah. Is that is there a solid biblical theological argument for that? Um, you, you, First you know, of all, you didn't answer my question. Where's the scripture that says the husband is the head of the house? Well, you got Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11, and all of these kinds of things. But it talks about the headship of men. Okay. Um, so that's kind of full circle, then, right? Right. Um, I, I'm I'm not the counselor here, and again, this whole this whole thing that uh, that we're doing together here is kind of a stream of consciousness. But in just listening, um, the first thing that kind of strikes me is, I, I guess I, I'm wondering about the kind of love that this guy has for his wife, um, and not to cast aspersions on somebody I don't know, but it sounds to me like he loves his wife for what he can get out of her. And um, I don't think that that's the deepest, most profound, richest way to love somebody. Uh, and, I th- and I think that our world does a pretty good job of messing up love. Uh, I heard somebody one time talk about, you, you know, we say we love chocolate cake, but that's not love. We don't really love that cake. We want to eat that cake. And that's not love when it comes, if you're looking at it from the cake side of it. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that that's true. We 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 don't know what we say a lot of times when we say the word love. I love my wife, but how do I get her on board? You know, do you love your wife for what you can get out of her? Or do you love your wife to this point, but no more? To this point, but unless something happens, it's no more? Or it doesn't get past this? I mean, I think when you love your wife, you, you love her all the way. And I think when you love somebody like that, you're not looking for them to get on board with something that is necessarily going to benefit you, but not benefit them. I mean, you can love somebody and want them to get on board with the faith in Christ and all of that, but that, but that's, that's for their good. You know, when you say, how do I get my wife on board here? It sounds like you're trying to get, you have your own agenda and my wife is my, uh, commodity. I think there's a lot of men that are, that are pretty good hearted men. Fairly, relatively speaking, <laughs> gentle, compassionate, uh, maybe even pretty good at empathy. But they believe to some extent because I am the husband, God hands me the plan that he wants for us. And th- so me in carrying out that plan is in her best interest as well as mine. And you know, the funny thing is the Bible doesn't really give us an example of what 
a godly marriage looks like. No, it doesn't. You know, it, it really doesn't. And in a John Gottman, who basically uh, says that marriages can kind of have uh, different kinds of looks to them, but they all work because they, they you know, they kind of have some of the same principles at work. I mean, you can have sort of a Mediterranean where there's a lot of emotion and a lot of yelling, but it's very, very loving. You can have people that uh, are not very communicative, but uh, their marriage is great. Or you know, yeah. or you have people that fight a lot, but they just really love each other. That all of these marriages actually kind of work, but they don't work because they fit a certain kind of a uh, you know, you know yeah. there's not a mold that you you stick them in. And yeah. and and I think that, that that's true today. I mean, I really agree with that. I, the Bible doesn't really give us. Uh, what a perfect marriage looks like. It looks and, like, and doesn't give us husband roles and wife roles. Y- yeah, um, uh, I, I think marriages work because of principles yeah. that are eternal, and and I think that your marriage and my marriage and somebody else's marriage may look completely different, but they can be all godly and uh, and all God honoring and 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 fulfilling and 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 blessed and loving and all of that, but they may not look all the same. But they do have the same principles. Yeah. You know, my wife's personality and my personality are completely different. She is she's very much introspective, and 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 even though I'm, I wouldn't consider myself an extrovert, um, I, I am kind You're of an a, extrovert. Except that people wear me out, and I thought that that was supposed to energize you. <laughs> but 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 she's low energy. I'm high energy. Yes. I, I mean, how are people supposed to relate to each other in that? Yeah. You know. And here's the thing too. Um, you, you got to be careful with this whole idea of headship that you don't run over your wife, which would be the case in mine. I, I, it, my, my energy level is so much higher than hers and my personality is so much stronger than hers that if, if I did not have submission principles placed in my life by God being a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, I would run right over her. Yeah. Now, she's well, not scared and, and of there, me. And, but, there, you, and yeah. there I think you have uh, a big piece of where I, I see... I see a lot of couples, I work with a lot of couples where I will hear a version of this over and over again. And that is, yes, the husband says, I have a hard time with my wife. She doesn't submit. And the wife will say, yes, I need to get better at submitting. And to me, it's like, okay, there's your, there to me, that's the root of the problem here in this marriage is it's power struggle. And so I used to, you know, way I used to think in, in as far as marriage is that, you know, I, I really like this idea of headship, meaning I am the, I've got 51% of the vote, you know. Uh, yes, I, um, I let her make some decisions. I, you know, I share that, except when it comes to those where we don't see to eye to eye, somebody's got to break the tie, and that's got to be me. That's why God put me. And, and, but what I didn't understand is... Are you saying that's what you believe that's, or that's what you heard? That's what I used to believe. Okay. You know? And so, yeah, be a benevolent. Try to share in decision-making. But when you get down to where the rubber meets the road and you don't see eye to eye, that somebody's got to have... Somebody's got to break the tie. In, in a democracy, you either have unanimous or split decision. There's no... That's, you know. So somebody's got to break the tie. I didn't understand a lot of the power of dynamics at the time, which is... Wives can filibuster. Wives <laughs> can filibuster. The, the, the covert power is every bit as powerful as the overt power. And if you're not sharing power, then then you're going to... 
as much as you're trying to be submissive and as much as you're trying to be a benevolent, best interest of your wife, head of the household, then you're going to have some major power struggles that are going to run underneath everything that you do and eventually are going to take over your marriage. So when I, when, uh, I know you don't like the phrase um, win-win, but it's just a simple way of saying sharing power. When I say sharing power, that, yeah, sometimes, hey, you know more about this one, honey. You, you make the decision and vice versa. But sometimes when it comes to things that we both, oh, you know, we feel strongly about, but we see very differently, uh, we're only going to, th- we're going to think, well, one of us is right, one of us is wrong. And so we'll try to argue it out. And one person might finally say, okay, we'll do it your way. Well, that, that, that's not going to work because their, their covert power, whether they want to or not, is going to sabotage it working, you know. It's like if you're driving in a car and you're, you're you know, you're in the overt power position. You're, you, you're sitting in the, behind the steering wheel and your wife says to you, turn here. And you go, no, I, this is way faster. She goes, turn here. And, no, this way is faster. And, you know, no, I'm an overpower, and you go this way. And then she says, you don't ever listen to, you know, and no, I know I'm right. And you get there, and you think you've won because you think you came short away. You didn't win. There's no way she's going to, she's probably going to tell the people wherever you just arrived at church or whatever. Yeah, well, we would have been here five minutes later, but Mark had to go his way, you know. You you don't win when you, when you, when you don't share power. And I think that's... Um, to me, that's where I, I really see the damage. I think there's a lot of husbands out there that really, um, they're, they're good-hearted men, but they believe ultimately, you know, I've got to be the tiebreaker. Ultimately, ultimately, God hands me the big plan first, you know, and that's where I see a lot of damage in marriages. You, you know, uh, again, we go back to the language. I, I still think that in Ephesians 5, he's telling them both the same thing. Telling them both to submit to yeah, each other. You know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to say to somebody, you have to say something very bluntly. Mm-hmm. You have to say you're not doing the job. Uh, to other people, you have to say, you know, well, what if you thought about this and this and this? You know, it, it's a way of communicating. And, and same with illustrations. What if Paul is saying the same thing, which he does in the verse right before it, submit to one another. What if he has to say, bluntly to wives you need to submit what it means to be a disciple is not that in your freedom you are you live a life without restraints you need to submit but he's saying to the husbands in a way that they can hear it you need to love your wife in such a way that it's just like christ who died it's like christ who made her beautiful who christ brought out the best when we do premarital counseling, that's what we tell them both. And we do it in the ceremonies. We say, remember what we said in the premarital counseling. Your full-time job is to bring out the best in your spouse. And what if his language is saying uh, the same thing in two different ways there? Which I think explains why he says submit to one another right before that. He's just trying to help them to understand. You know what just came to mind uh, is uh, I remember when our kids... Uh, our two oldest, Abby, who's now 27, been married four years, and Connor, who's 20, almost 25. Uh, the, our two daughters had, in our first house, they had, they were in a room together, and our son had his own room down the hall from each other. And 
you know, they they always had each other for a playmate to, to play girl stuff, whatever they want to play. But so sometimes when he was bored, he would just go in there and antagonize them or try to get them to play. So we we had this discussion many times where we'd go, we, we'd hear this arguing and yelling, we'd go back there and we'd say, you guys get along with each other. You love each other. You try to, you know, do what you can to include each other, to be sweet to each other. But usually how that played out then was, Connor, you get out of their room. Girls, you quit sticking your tongue out at your brother. Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that, so that, that was not a directive for all sons and daughters for all time. That was what we had to do over and over again because of that scenario that kept cropping up. It wasn't stay out of their room and quit sticking your tongue out. It's love each other. Yeah. And that's a way that they could understand it. Yeah. I, I, I just, I, I cannot understand a definition of love that does not include submitting and serving and sacrifice. Yeah. I, there, I, I cannot understand a definition of love starting with Genesis and going all the way to the maps as we've been kind of talking about it that does not inv- include that. Uh, I, I think that there, there's just way too much of a uh, loving somebody for what you can get out of them or loving them to this point but no further because they don't, you know, they're not meeting your needs. And that's not truly loving somebody. And, and I think that that's just like you were describing with your kids. You're basically saying the same thing. Love with one another. Make it work. Be a family. Be siblings. But you know how that's going to work? You know, you're going to have to have patience with your brother and and not make fun of him, and you're not going. To, you're not supposed to go to places where you're. It's inappropriate. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And 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 I and I think that's the deal. I mean, uh, I I never want to be the kind of husband that stands in the way of Ellen's flourishing as a human being. Now, we're going to have a more traditional uh, marriage, but it's it's because of the things that she's comfortable with and the things that she really wants me yeah. to take on oh, yeah. and, 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 and I'm fine with that. But there are also some things that, that, uh, that, uh, that I also need her to take a lead with. Mm-hmm. And, and she does and, and it works. And it's, I think that people look at our marriage or at least I hope they can. And they see something about what the gospel is all about, right. where there's forgiveness and service and intimacy and, and you know, these kinds of things. they don't try to formulate that based on, the roles that they see you playing out domestically and who seems to be in and make what decisions. You know, um, when people ask me what's the biggest secret to marriage or what's the most important thing, uh, I've gotten to where this is my answer over and over again. I don't, I don't know what the secret uh, or the most important thing. I could tell you several things, but the, what's made the biggest impact on not just our marriage, but our children, uh, our family, is back when when our oldest Abby was starting to get into middle school, I believe, late middle school, and that whole season of <laughs> starts to really worry parents, right? And uh, Joanne and I both grew up, you know, believing we should have quiet time every day, but we were both pretty sporadic about it not very loyal and until about I think Abby was probably about eighth grade and, and I noticed Joanna was getting up earlier every morning than normal 
for about a week and a half. And so I finally, I better go see what this is about. And I went down and she's sitting on the couch with her Bible in front of her. At the time, she had also my utmost, my utmost for his highest, which she usually has. Oswald some, Chambers. Yeah, she, Oswald Chambers. She usually has some other book that, that she reads along with her. Uh, she's back around to that one now, by the way. She's gone through Jesus Calling several times. And, but, uh, and, and then her journal, her, her prayer journal um, in her lap. And so I'm like, ooh. Well, she took the lead on that one. I better, you know, uh, I better get in line here. Um, and so I started joining her. And then uh, our oldest started, she figured out we were doing this, and she started joining us. And then our son. Within just a few months, all three of our kids were every morning getting up a little earlier with us to go down there and have that time. And it was just the most beautiful sight for the first thing that a father could have. But that has made more impact on our marriage, our family, on everything. And, you know, to where now, just visiting my daughter a few weeks ago up in Fort Worth, her and her husband, and we, uh, they they had the, the first day we were there, the first morning, we got there one night, and the next morning they both had to work that day. And uh, I got up to see what, you know, Abby's getting ready for, work and she's sitting there on the, on the couch with her bible in her lap and it was like that you know it, it, that's the deal yeah that's the deal right there but joanna took the lead on that uh because her husband didn't take the lead on that and uh, i am very thankful for her leadership and so like going back to what you said at the beginning when when can we i think you said when when can a woman teach but when can uh, when can a woman when, lead? When a woman, woman lead? <laughs> when, when the she, man's not. <laughs> when he's not, yes. Yeah, when he's and, not a good example. And yeah, man, I, I don't. Oh, somebody could take that wrong. But I, I, what I'm really saying is, I believe leadership in the family is both the job of the husband and the wife. And I think I, I think sometimes some women don't want to take leadership is because they don't know how because they weren't raised to. And they were raised in a culture that, that um, they were trained t- to not lead because that's how you don't that's how you keep from rocking the boat and upsetting your husband and and so they were trained to you know and again like I know every marriage is different and what works works but I think we as being good husbands and like Christ wants leadership out of us too that, that we are. We are bringing, like you said, or we're bringing out their leadership in them. We're helping to nurture that, and making and, the best version yeah, of them. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know the 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 word sum, submit, the, the the way that uh, I think a lot of people think about it today is uh, that if I submit, then somehow I've got to repress or suppress who I am at my core. Yeah. And that's not what that word means. And it's through the filter of a, a business model or a military model of, of relationship, yeah. which subordination kind of... Against your will. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I think there's, there's two kind of leaders uh, to take it out of like a marriage, but into, you know, there are, there are military leaders that you hear guys say, I would follow them into battle anytime. Mm-hmm. That's a mission. But it's but it's a willing and a joyful submission 
because of who that other person is. And then there are those that, that go into battle, but there's disgruntlement and there's fear and because you don't know if you're going to make it out alive. Mm-hmm. You know, that yourself may be killed off. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, a, uh, that's, a, that's, that's not the only way that submission takes place in the world. I think that there can be a joyful submitting of myself uh, to my wife in the same way that it's extremely joyful me, uh, joyful uh, for me to submit myself to God. Yeah. You know, and uh, God, God brings out the best in me. And so does Ellen. Yeah. It seems like the more that you submit to your wife, the more she wants to submit to you in the first place anyway. Yeah. I think intimacy is, is not linear. Mm-hmm. I think it's cyclical. Yeah. You know, when, when, when I am serving my wife, she's going to be much more apt to serve me who, it, with my needs being met, serve her, and it, it's more cyclical. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that intimacy that is linear is manipulation. I'm going to do these things, A, B, C, in order to get to, right. you know, to G. And, and I, that's, not, that's, that's not love. That's manipulation. I love you for what I can get out of you. I'll give you a foot night, a foot rub tonight, so I can have sex tomorrow night. Yeah, no, that's yeah. Yeah, what was it the uh, the generation before said? If you want a cake in the evening, you gotta warm the oven in the morning or something like that. Yeah, and, and 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 yeah, I, and I don't like that. I mean, it's very manipulative. It, it is. Yeah. It's manipulative. Though you know those things. If your wife likes that, why aren't you doing that all the time? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're just saving it so you can get what you want. Yeah. You love her for what you can get out of her, right. and that's not love, and that's not. That's not the kind of love that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5. No, it's not. How's that dying for your wife? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so we said we're going to go 30 minutes. Uh, maybe I can break this up into two <laughs> segments. Yeah. But there's, there's, you know what? I would really like to come back. Yeah. No, we wore this puppy out. No, I, I, we could go off in so many directions. But, uh, and we did. <laughs> and we did. It's, yeah. it's fun. You know, the thing is, uh, I, I recorded us for uh, a few months ago for another podcast I never put up. And, I, and I've got to thinking, uh, maybe it's just that I, I just want, want to come and have conversation with you, not really have a podcast. But I think this one's, we can use some of this at least. <laughs> well, you got an hour and five minutes <laughs> or 30 minutes we, we, worth can, of stuff. we can find 20 minutes yeah just make sure there's a footnote that you know this was all off the cuff and winging it and yeah. you know stream of consciousness and not anything that was uh necessarily thought out well in advance it's just two guys reacting yes yeah you, you know though um uh just, just kind of as a, a last thing um i just think marriage is a wonderful thing yeah it is isn't it? It, it, it is it, it's an incredible thing and um, when when I think you really sense that there is somebody that is is inside of you and you're inside of them, there is a, there's there's a there's a no going back, and you don't want to settle for anything less than that. You don't want to be loved by God that way, and you certainly don't want to be loved by a spouse that way. And 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 the flip side of that is true is when you realize how deeply you can be loved by somebody, it's just so transformational. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I'm not a different person today because my wife is bossy or demanding, but that because my wife loves me in ways that I can't even get my mind around. And, and there's something transformational about that that makes you different. Yes. You know, the experience of love 
is what transforms human beings. Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize our culture for lifelong love. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this and any of our podcasts. Just drop us an email at relationshiprewire at gmail.com. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Let's do it again. What, what we can talk about next time? We can talk about deer hunting next time. I was going to say the the importance of sports and 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 uh, helping your spouse become a spur. Oh, by the way, Joanna said, can, can just me and you watch the Spurs game again tonight? I really like that. You and her? Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I like I've 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 arrived when when my wife asks if just her and I can watch the Spurs. What's your favorite food? Joanna's? Yeah. She loves everything. She just, she loves to go out to eat and do I love going out to eat with her. She is so much fun.